Good afternoon. I'm Robin Shade, and I'm a senior education policy analyst here at the Center for American Progress. And I'd like to welcome all of you to what promises to be a really exciting discussion about strategies and incentives for attracting effective teachers to high poverty schools. And I'm really encouraged by the turnout because I think it means that all of you realize that this is a really critical issue. I want to begin by thanking the Joyce Foundation for their support of these papers, this event, and our ongoing work on this issue. It's both a worrisome and a hopeful time for all of us who are concerned about public education and particularly the achievement of poor and minority students. Everyone knows that we're experiencing a severe economic crisis that's likely to last for several years. And the resulting decline in tax revenues is going to reduce state and local education funding in many places. Yet it's also a hopeful time and a unique opportunity. The combination of the urgent state of the economy and a new administration in Washington make this an opportune moment for us to rethink how we've traditionally done business in education and to advance some bold changes in policy. And while the president-elect has promised some new investments in education, and we're hopeful that that will happen, policymakers and educators need to look at the efficiency and effectiveness of how they're spending the funds that they have now and make wise choices for their current investments. Our investments in teachers are an important place to start. About two-thirds of education funding is spent on salaries and instructional ex expenses. And these dollars aren't necessarily spent in ways that meet district strategic goals. For the most part, states and districts don't invest in attracting and retaining effective teachers in high poverty schools for a variety of reasons, including technical and political challenges. And there are a number of indicators that suggest that poor minority students are shortchanged when it comes to teacher qualifications. These students have teachers with weaker qualifications and less experience. And this matters because we all know intuitively, and research has substantiated, that teachers play a critical role in improving student learning. At CAP, we're particularly interested in thinking about how to ensure that all students, and particularly poor and minority students, are taught by effective teachers. So today our discussion is going to focus on strategies and incentives that states and districts can use to attract effective teachers to high poverty schools. And one of our goals in learning from these papers and from the expertise of our panelists and from our discussion today is to think about how federal policy can support and incent some of these strategies. Today we're releasing two papers that provide some new thinking on this topic. Addressing the teacher qualification gap, exploring the use and efficacy of incentives to reward teachers for tough assignments by Dan Goldhaber. This paper discusses the labor mar market for teachers, why inequities develop, and provides some potential solutions. Financial incentives for hard to staff positions, cross-sector lessons for public education by Julie Cowell, Brian Hassel, and Emily Askew Haskell explores what we can learn from other sectors outside of education about incentives for hard to staff positions. We're going to start our discussion with presentations of these two papers by the authors, who are also experts in human capital issues. Dr. Dan Goldhaber is a research professor at the University of Washington Center on Reinventing Public Education, an affiliated scholar of the Urban Institute's Education Policy Center, and senior non-resident fellow of education sector. His research focuses on issues of educational productivity and reform at the K-12 level and the relationship between teacher labor markets and teacher quality. Julie Cowell is a senior consultant with Public Impact, where she has conducted extensive education policy and management research to inform school restructuring and improvements in human capital. And we're lucky enough today to have three panelists who are involved in policy development and the implement 
implementation of strategies to attract effective teachers to high poverty schools. Victoria Van Cleef is the Vice President of Staffing Initiatives for the New Teacher Project, where she oversees projects that focus on building school-level capacity to make effective hires and staffing chronically low-performing schools. Segun Eubanks is the Director of Teacher Quality for the National Education Association and is an expert and advocate on teacher recruitment, teacher diversity, and teacher quality. And Corey Curl is Education Policy Advisor to Governor Bredesen in Tennessee where she leads research efforts to support the governor's education reform agenda, primarily in teacher effectiveness, standards, and assessments, and school finance. So let's begin. Uh, well, I think I have a presentation somewhere. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, it is a, it's a pleasure to be here to talk about a, a, a topic that I actually think is a, a real disgrace in education. Um, but it's, it's nice to see that there are, are, uh, there's a big turnout of people who are concerned about um, the distribution of teach, teachers and the fact that the distribution is, is pretty inequitable and that that is a, a real problem. So I'm going to focus on that today. And I want to begin by basically just talking about you know, why we, we likely see the distribution that we do. And the, the long and short of it is that you really can't escape the labor market. But the way that we treat um, the teacher labor market is, to some extent, as if it doesn't exist. So in a lot of industries, it's quite common to see that um, financial incentives and, and other kind of incentives, but for the most part, financial incentives are used uh, as a means of getting people who may not want to work in a, a really difficult environment to work in a difficult environment. So, you know, it's kind of economics 101 that the welder at the top of the skyscraper gets paid more than the welder at the bottom of the skyscraper because they're being paid a risk premium. And um, people who have more difficult jobs tend to get paid more than people who tend not to have more difficult jobs. So that is not the, the prevailing way that teachers are paid. Um, per, you know, for the most part, teachers are paid based with along the single salary schedule. They get paid according to their degree and experience level alone. Um, there are some places that use pay differentials, compensating differentials, but uh, that is not the, the um, primary means by which teachers are paid. So um, it's not surprising that you see this kind of uh, distribution that you see, um, and it's not surprising because teachers who are um, who have more experience, uh, who have higher degrees, who are, are licensed in their area, have more bargaining power in the labor market, and um, there's pretty good evidence that teachers care about the kind of students that they are teaching. And so when you get those two things working together, you get this maldistribution of teachers across students. Um, now, the, the question is, should we really care about this? And, and I opened up by saying um, we should, um, but there's, there's some evidence that suggests that the link between the kinds of credentials and characteristics that we use to pay and reward teachers is not strongly linked to uh, student outcomes. So one might say, Okay, so there's this dis there's a, a maldistribution based on things that we don't care a heck of a lot about, and I guess I would argue that that um, that's sort of true and sort of not true. Uh, on the one hand, um, there's very good evidence that teachers get better 
as they move on and experience early on in their career. So you would expect that if there's a maldistribution based on teacher experience, that that's going to have real consequences for student achievement. Secondly, there's kind of a constant churn in hard-to-staff schools. And we don't have very good evidence on this yet, but I don't think it would be a real surprise if the churn itself is bad for student achievement just because you don't have that continuation um, with a, a set group of students that you would have in, in, in a more stable uh, school environment. And then lastly, the fact that the, the distribution is as it is um, results in real inequities in spending on students. And this is a point that I know that CAP has, has um, emphasized, but, it, but I don't think that one can emphasize it enough because the gaps in spending because of the distribution of, of teachers are really, in some cases, profound gaps. Um, the way that a lot of schools system budgets work is that when a, a teacher goes out to a school, the school system says, um, we're going to say that that teacher cost the average amount of teachers in the school district. When in fact, we know that it's the more experienced, more credentialed teachers that are teaching the more advantaged schools. So in those schools, you're systematically under-reporting the amount of money that's actually going into the school. And in schools serving more disadvantaged students, you're systematically over-reporting the amount. So one of the recommendations that I'm going to make at the end of what I hope is all of a 15-minute talk, I'm going to definitely need that reminder of timing because I'm like already way behind what I wanted to say. Um, one of the recommendations that I'm going to make is um, that we need really, we need a lot better data to figure out what's going on. And um, we need to, to a change in the way that school systems report out what is being spent at schools so that um, people who want to make the case that it's, this is just not fair, uh, they are armed with the tools that they need to make that case. I was going to show you a little bit of, um, of data to, to say, look, things haven't really changed from, from 1993, 94 to 2003, 2004, but it's in the paper, so I'm not going to show you that, that data. But I will tell you that if you look at a, a national picture, um, there's a real inequity, particularly based on experience level, for uh, students that are eligible for free and reduced lunch and for students that are uh, students of color. Um, so those inequities exist. Uh, basically, any, any look at the state level with comprehensive state databases that cover you know, the whole teacher workforce, they find these kind of inequities. Um, and, we, and we haven't done much to improve it, even though I think that there's a lot of rhetoric around the issue. Now, there's, there's some bright spots. Uh, and, and I'll talk a little bit about those bright spots, um, but I don't think we've made as a nation a lot of progress in, in improving the situation. This is a difficult problem to address, and it's a difficult problem to address because of the source of the inequity. So in states that have the capacity to, to look at the distribution uh, of teachers across schools, districts, labor market boundaries, what they, um, they tend to find, and I put a couple examples up here, what they tend to find is that most of the inequity is between schools that are within a school district. Now, if that were not the case, if it were the case that um, most of the inequity, for instance, was between labor markets, then you might think about tweaking you know, state funding allocations because um, you think, well, we really haven't adjusted for the, the differences in, in um, ability to attract teachers into a different labor market. Or if it were about between district differences, you might think, 
wow, we've got some inequities in the way that we fund school districts. So um, one way to address the teacher qualification gap is to have a fairer distribution of funding to school districts. And you know, that's, that looks from the data like there's a little piece of that, but most of the inequity is within district, and that means that it's district-level policies that seem to exacerbate this inequity. And I don't think it's a surprise that these inequities exist, because for the district-level policymakers, there are political reasons why you might want to have your your most qualified, maybe some of your best teachers, in the more advantaged schools. Those tend to be the schools where you've got high um, parental participation, so you've got parents that are really probably pushing the, the um, school administration, the school board um, to, to get the good teachers into the schools, and they're also likely the schools where you've got high turnout in, in elections. So in, um, in school board elections where you know, the turnout's you know, 15, 20%, having an active parent base, even if it's a small active parent base, can really make a huge difference. So that makes it very difficult to address that problem. What are the, some of the, the things that um, people look at to address the problem? Well, they look at changes in working conditions. Many of the working conditions that um, teachers say that they care about based on qualitative evidence are things like school leadership and safety. Um, I think that those are probably quite important working conditions that need to be a, a addressed. And, and one might argue that there are some sort of baseline um, conditions that might be necessary that, to, to, to actually have teachers move into tough schools um, so that money might make a difference, but it might make a much bigger difference after you've established a basic level of safety at the school. So I don't doubt those things, but I also think that the evidence on working conditions is about working conditions that are not easily policy manipulable. So what do I mean by that? Um, we know it matters if you've got a good instructional leader. Right? I, I, I'm looking for some audience feedback, some head shaking, right? So people say it matters if you've got a good instructional leader, if it's safe at the school. You can't, you can't flip a switch and make those things better. So one of the things that I did with, with some colleagues at the University of Washington is take a look at, and I'm looking for a curse, oh, there it is, take a look at um, what teachers say they care about uh, in terms of working conditions the kinds of working conditions where you can change them through policy versus um, pay incentives. So we looked at, we surveyed teachers and we said, what would you prefer? $5,000 or a working condition change that's roughly equivalent to $5,000? I'm gonna emphasize this, um, this issue of roughly equivalent uh, because I've, I've put this up here, I've put this up here many times and oftentimes I hear uh, a reaction that, well, hey, um, when, when, you, when you give people the choice between $5,000 or two fewer students in their class, as, as um, this particular set of bars represents, so many teachers prefer the, the $5,000, they say, two, two fewer students, well, that doesn't mean very much. So of course they chose the 5,000. You should have made a trade-off between 5,000 and 10 fewer students. And I say, you know what? My guess is that a higher percentage of people would have chosen a, a, a class that has got 10 fewer students, but that's not a cost equivalent trade-off. So from the policymaker's perspective, these are the trade-offs that you really care about. So very quickly, um, 5,000 or fewer students, most people say, and again, this is, this is a, based on survey work, so you know, it's, it's not what they actually there's no revealed preference, so we don't know that, that their preferences translate into differences in behavior. 
um, but it's at least what teachers say they care about. Um, $5,000 versus a, a shared full-time aid, and $5,000 versus some additional preparation time. So we come to the conclusion that teachers seem to care about the, the money. And in fact, when I've talked to the unions and put up some of this um, work, they say, well, that's no surprise to us that, that all of our internal surveys, and actually, I, I don't know if, I'd love, to, I'd love to hear a comment on this, but all of our internal surveys basically show this, this um, the same kind of pattern. But it, I think it does fly a little bit in the face of the conventional wisdom about what teachers care about. Okay, there are uh, a, a number of states um, that are engaging and, and, and some federal efforts to um, encourage through financial incentives teachers to teach and hard to staff. Is that one minute? Five, good. Um, hard to staff schools. Um, examples of this are the, you know, the TEACH grants or the Teacher Incentive Fund grants. Um, so the, the incentives come in lots of different forms. They come in the form of housing subsidies. They come in the form of loan forgiveness. They come in the form of um, just actual salary supplements. There's only one study that I have seen that I think really meets uh, a standards of evidence, a high standard of evidence for being um, legitimate that shows whether or not these different kinds of financial incentives make a difference. And what they find is, oh, in fact, they do make a difference, a small difference, um, reducing attrition. So North Carolina had a, a program where they offered teachers a $1,500 bonus and um, to teachers in, in uh, high demand subjects if they would stay in the higher poverty schools. And they found that the $1,500 reduced attrition by about 12, 15%. Um, and the, the authors also find, uh, as an aside, but an important aside, that the, the program was not very well publicized or explained. So lots of teachers didn't understand why they were getting the extra money, and they estimate that the, it would might have been twice as effective if the, if the implementation had been a little bit better, which I think is a, an important caveat, basically, for all kinds of educational <laughs> programs. Um, so the, the thing that's funny about this is that the state... Um, put this program into effect, a couple, year, couple of years later they abandoned the program, and it wasn't until a couple of years after that that they found out that, oh, it did exactly what it, it was intended to do. So another recommendation that I'm, I, I make, and this is just in case I don't actually get to this slide, is that when new policies go into effect, and this could apply to any kind of new education policy, but we'll say for addressing the teacher qualification gap, that you really need to figure out the time that you're implementing the policy, whether or not um, it, you, need to, you need to factor in um, some, some research and some research timeline so that you can really see whether or not it's doing what you intend for it to do. And I would argue that we'd know almost nothing about the various kinds of incentives, be they um, working conditions incentives or financial incentives, whether they are, or not they are effective, so that we ought to be investigating this. That said, as an economist, I've got to say that offering teachers more money, offering them relatively better working conditions, I don't know that we know the magnitude of the effects that would ha take place because of the, the inducement, but I think we can say pretty definitively that if you're trying to address the qualification gap, offering people um, an incentive to go to hard-to-staff schools is going to have some kind of impact. We just know that from, from labor economics. Um, all right, so 
I, I, I talked a little bit about the, the issues around and the political issues that come up with within district distribution. Um, there's also a lot of union bashing on this issue. And, you know, in all candor, I think that the unions have been opposed to, to changes in the single salary schedule. Uh, and some of those changes um, might be good changes to make. But this is not an area where the unions seem to be very strongly opposed. In fact, if you look at the, the schools and staffing survey, which is this national portrait of what's going on with schools, you see that um, uh, roughly twice as many districts are using pay for performance as using hard to staff school incentives. And the union takes a much harder line against pay for performance. All right. So what I conclude is that it's not primarily union opposition on this issue, or at least if there's union opposition um, and there's even more union opposition in terms of pay for performance, people who are interested in pay for performance are pushing a whole lot harder on that issue than they are on addressing the teacher qualification gap. Um, the big issue, I think, is this zero-sum game, at least when it comes to the within-district incentives. So. I'm looking, I'm looking to see, do I have one more minute? All right. So data, research, you know, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a research guy, so it's no surprising that, that I'm going to call for more data and research. But I, I mean this from two perspectives. I think we got to know what works and, and the magnitude uh, of effects. So if, you know, I've got some survey work that suggests that teachers prefer to have money as over, over class size, but what we really care about is not what they say, but what they do. So if it turned out that smaller classes seemed to attract good teachers into, into schools and that, was a, that was a, um, had a bigger impact than equivalent dollar investments in salary, we ought, to be do, we ought to be trying that. So we ought to figure out what's the right kind of mix of incentives to have a, a, a big impact. Um, I mentioned that we need to, to um, allow the time to, to, to do that figuring out, to see what the impact is. And then I, I really think that the issue of just um, being transparent about what's going on in schools is, is fundamentally important, that it gives um, advocates the tools that they need to make this case. And sometimes uh, it's just making the case to people who could be more careful about the way that they um, that they handle teacher attrition, teacher placement, all the kind of human capital staffing issues that come up in school systems. And I, I'm not going to say anything more about that because we're going to hear about that, I think, um, in, in, in a minute. But I, I, I was really struck by some, some stories that came up yesterday in, in a separate, separate meeting about this issue. Um, <clears throat> the last thing I would say is that some of the places where you do see progress in terms of the, the qualification gap, it seems that the progress has been made by tapping into uh, to new sources of teacher supply. So it's a way of, uh, of moving away from the idea that this is a zero-sum game. So I think that a, a solution is to tap into new sources of, of supply. And one of the ways that I'm just going to put in a pitch for something else that came up yesterday, one of the ways that we can um, address the supply issue of teachers is by having some harmonization of licensure requirements. So I have no idea how many teachers are lost because people move from one state to another, but it is surely not an easy thing um, to, to be relicensed between some state moves. 
And that is really important because every year the ed schools graduate twice as many teachers as are actually needed in the school system. And that's, that's in all this talk about um, teacher shortages, um, that fact is often missed, is that there are shortages in some areas and some kinds of schools and in some states, but if we could distribute teachers across the country better, the, the extent of those shortages would probably be mitigated a great deal. And so we shouldn't have systems in place that um, encourage teachers to leave the, the, the labor market and never come back. Thanks. Do you need us to do something? Nope. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> those are, yeah, those are the slides. I'm guessing that you are. I'll, I'll find it. Start, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I'm really encouraged to see such a turnout. I, I think we're having an increasing awareness of the <laughs> profound problem we have here and I'm, I'm really grateful to see so many people interested in solving it. Thanks. Can you make oh, yeah. So Dan already made my first point for me really and, and I, so I think we can start the conversation at, at point number two. Um, if we know that compensation, financial incentives are a critical part of this solution, I mean I think we can definitely have a, a separate conversation about working conditions, um, the types of things that teachers have, have said are more important to them than pay. Um, but we know that let's let's go with the assumption that pay has got to be a part of this, and then and then we could start the conversation at the next level. Um, how does this? You gonna go back one? Wait. Sorry. Okay. No. Yeah. Um, so, but even if even if we are committed, we we're interested in and, and we want to use these financial incentives. As Dan said, we really we've had very little experimentation with them in education. We've had even less research. So we actually know very little about how they should be designed. Um, how much should we be offering? Who should get them? Tap when you want it. When you want it. <laughs> slide oh, thanks. Advance. Okay. Um, who should get them? What form should it take? When should they get them? We don't know, really have good answers to these questions in education, but other sectors outside of education, um, the military, the civil service, uh, the medical field, and certainly private industry have been using these incentives for years. We have market pay, combat pay, everybody knows these terms, and they've been working for, I mean, as my colleague put it, the military has been recruiting an all-volunteer force to go die um, for years. <laughs> and they've been doing it using, in large part, these very large financial incentives. So we looked to these other sectors. And I, I want to point out, I think, next, one, um, an interesting thing about looking to these other public sectors is that in many cases they're s structured similarly to education. So um, they're using, while not identical, they're using similar salary schedules. They're publicly regulated. And most importantly, they're distributing these incentives based on policy rather than individual managers' discretion. Um, so our goal with this project was to, to look at the research in these other sectors and to talk to experts who have designed and studied these programs to find out what they've learned about how to make them most effective. Thank you. Okay, um, so three big findings. Um, I'll just go through these quickly and then, and then go into a little bit more detail. I started off my interviews with all of these, these experts and, and researchers and HR um, administrators with question one, can we use compensation to address these staffing shortages? And almost everyone I talked to said, can we skip question one? I mean, they're, 
In these other sectors, they've long ago moved from the question of whether to how. They're using financial incentives as a matter of course. It's a no-brainer that you use pay in service of your mission. And part of the mission is to fill these, these positions that are difficult to staff. Um, so public education is really alone in our failure to use our personnel dollars in service of our mission. Uh, second, I think we're having, we, we still have a, probably what's health, a healthy debate in education about whether these incentives can work. Um, as Dan said, the, the economic, from an economic standpoint, they do. They, and, and from these other sectors, we have evidence that they do. Um, it's not just that any incentive will work. They're most effective when they're tailored to an individual context. So the need, the goal, and what new candidates and current employees need and, and value. And finally, I think it's important, as Robin pointed out at the beginning, we need to be realistic about our financial situation right now. And so what we also found was that the, in these other sectors, organizations are using companion kind of parallel strategies um, that don't involve money necessarily. So targeted recruitment and restructuring the nature of the job to help lessen the need for these hard to staff positions. So why are these organizations using pay. I think, you know, Dan kind of talked about this a little bit. The fir first point is just that it is changeable. It's, it's much easier to manipulate pay than a lot of these other factors that make schools hard to staff. And it's not only that you can affect it fairly easily through policy, but that it's easier to change quickly in response to changing circumstances. So um, a market shortage may make a position difficult to fill in one year, but not the next. Pay changes to respond to that kind of change quickly. Um, and second, is, as Robin already mentioned, we are, when we talk about compensation, we're talking about an enormous tool because so many dollars go to personnel in every type, most types of organizations, including education. Like 60% of our dollars in education are, are going to personnel right now. So this is a, p a very powerful tool when you start to manipulate it to manage your staffing and manage performance. And finally, as I said earlier, we know, we know that it can work. Um, and, and these organizations, as I said, it's a no-brainer. They've known for a long time that it can work, so that's why they use it. Okay, if we move from this question of whether we can use pay to how, um, and that's where the rest of this, well, my talk and the rest of the paper goes, um, then you start asking questions about what type of pay should we be using, how much, um, who should get it and when. And uh, the big picture is that, as I said, any type of incentive can and has been proven effective in these other, other sectors. What matters the most is whether or not it's tailored. Um, but there are some really interesting differences among these different forms of pay. So I just thought it would be interesting to point out, for one, loan repayment programs um, versus scholarships. There's some, there are advantages to loan repayment programs um, in terms of administrating the program and also in terms of its effectiveness. Um, I, I think loan repayment pro programs typically involve an award at the end of a candidate's schooling, um, and that's when they're better poised to make decisions about what they need, what they're interested in, what their family or personal circumstances are, and so we see a much greater retention effect um, for candidates who are in part of a loan repayment program than as a scholarship program where they made the decision to go into teaching when they were 18 or 19 years old, and who knows what's happened in the, in the intervening four years. Um, they're also easier to administer in that uh, when you, if you have a participant who doesn't fulfill the term of their service, so um, are required four or five years at a low-performing school, for example, the loan repayment program just, the, the repayment just stops. 
Whereas with a scholarship program, you're looking at converting it to loans or otherwise collecting this money in some way, which is just an administrative headache. Also, there's um, advantages to bonuses and salary supplements over just about any other kind of pay. And this goes primarily, um, the research from these other sectors, um, because they're visible. Um, cash is easier for a candidate to understand in many cases than a loan repayment program, scholarship, housing subsidy, any of these other forms that an incentive could take. And when you're trying to affect a person's behavior, as Dan said with this North Carolina program, it's very important that the candidates and your current employees understand what they're getting. So you can imagine as a teacher it's much easier to understand $30,000 as a life-changing event than it is to look at $30,000 worth of loan repayment, for example. And I, I want to spend just a, um, a minute on performance-based incentives um, at, to pull these out as one particular part, um, a, a type of incentive that we could be looking at in hard-to-staff schools because we have very strong evidence from other sectors that these performance-based pay is attractive to high performers, uh, people who have a sense that they will do well, that trust their ability to earn this performance-based pay are more enticed into those positions than, than other candidates. So I think we think about this in education a lot as, as a quantity problem, um, but without b building in some aspect of quality. Um, you know, with a bonus uh, or a housing subsidy, you could, in, in theory, be increasing the candidate pool, um, which would possibly allow a district or a school to select higher quality teachers. Um, but even if they're very tailored and very well designed, there's still nothing that is directly getting at this quality problem. And, and ultimately, it's the highest quality teachers that we need in these low-performing uh, low schools. Thanks. Okay, so everybody ready for the million-dollar question? How much? How much is enough? Um, I, I think what we find from the cross-sector research is pretty common sense, actually. Um, the, the optimal amount of these incentives depends on the reason for the shortage. And I'll just talk briefly about the market-based shortages because I think you know math and science teachers is not really our, our focus today. We're talking about low-performing schools. But for a market-based shortage like these math and science teachers where they have many other options with potentially much higher pay outside of education, the amount of the incentive is set by the comparable pay that they're getting in other sectors. Um, and I think in education we've we've kind of talked around comparable. It you know, is your job the same as a teacher's job, that's not, how, that's not how this market pay works. It's how much are you making in the position that you're going to instead of coming to education. Um, but the disamenity shortages, so disamenity, meaning the thing, the parts of the job that make it unattractive, uh, it's not a market-based shortage. It's that you know you're going to go into teaching, but why would you go to a school that has poor leadership or has, is potentially unsafe or you, where you don't get adequate support? Those disamenities, um, from an economic standpoint, the value of an incentive to go to those, those schools has to be set by an, the, the value that a candidate or a current teacher would assign to those disamenities. Clearly, that's difficult to get at. It's difficult to put a specific number on that. So I think the most important finding from these other sectors is that for these disamenity shortage positions, the, the amount of the incentives that they're using is much larger than anything we've looked at so far in education. And I'll just, this next slide will give you a sense. It's just sort of a sampling of the amounts of incentives in other sectors. Um, in the private sector, broadly, the incentives for um, hard-to-staff positions are roughly making between 6 and 15% of, a, of an employee's total pay. 
in the U.S. military, it's roughly around 10% for the service members who receive them. And in the federal civil service, it can be up to 25% of, of, the, of the employees' take-home pay. So we, I mean, we have states and districts kind of working with $1,000, $1,500, maybe $4,000. But if we were to look at comparable portions of new candidates and current employees' pay as these other sectors are working with, we'd be looking at more like four to $11,000. And that's an average. So that masks a great range of amounts. Um, and these other sectors, for example, if you're an officer in a critical shortage area in the military, you can make up, you, you sign on and you make up to $60,000 because you're in that shortage area. Um, in the, in the, for the service members, it can be up to ten dollars or $20,000 in, in particular positions. So they're tailored to the level of difficulty, the level of danger, the, the unattractiveness of the job um, with very high incentives in some positions and averaging still higher than what we've seen so far in education. Okay, so the question of, of how much, as I said, it's going to depend on the reason for the shortage, but also the, the value that candidates put place on these disamenities of the job. And fortunately, the labor market is fairly diverse when it comes to people's opinions of these things. So when I talk about companion staffing strategies, organizations in, in other sectors are um, taking advantage of the heterogeneity of the labor pool and targeting their recruitment to people who maybe don't mind the disamenities of the job. They're not really um, bothered by danger or difficult working conditions, or they might actually find them attractive. Um, and so then they require a smaller differential to get into the, to that hard-to-staff position. Um, so that's, that's one strategy, is, is targeting recruitment to people who already care um, and, and people who are not bothered by, thanks, the, the disamenities. The other is, um, I call it non-personnel solutions. I, I don't, it, this is a broad category, but these organizations in, in these other public sector are restructuring the nature of the job, redefining the job, um, either what it involves, what are the responsibilities of the job, or who, who needs to do this job so that they can reduce the number of hard-to-staff positions or make, it, make the job more attractive by reducing some of the responsibilities that might be disamenities to some candidates. I hope that makes sense. Okay, I have one minute. What are we gonna do? <laughs> um, okay. I, I think, so the first question I, I typically get when we look outside of education for research in other sectors is how do we translate this um, into public education? So I'm just gonna wrap up with a few, you're looking at my notes, with a few suggestions. <laughs> um, because we know there that are a lot of suggestions coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, because we know that um, any type of incentive, any form, can be effective um, when it's tailored, um, but it, but it has to be tailored to what the candidate wants and what the local need is. One thing we might think about in education is a portfolio of incentives. Um, so a set pot of money that can be distributed in a variety of forms so that it's attractive to a diverse labor market and, and workforce. The second is I think no matter its form, in education we need to start thinking of these incentives as much more substantial than we have so far. Um, we have strong evidence, as I've said, from these other sectors that these incentives can work, but they work when they're significant. But, okay, here I go asking for a lot more money, which is not fair these days. 
not realistic. So I think it's very important that we also look in education at targeting this ready pool, targeting our recruitment to candidates who already value the things that other people find unattractive about these schools. And rethinking the nature of what it is that teachers do. What do we ask them to do? How can we use technology, as so many other sectors have long ago, to redefine teachers' work so that they could be teaching more students or not working in such a remote location so that we can reduce the number of teachers that we need in, this, in these positions and also make the jobs more attractive? All that said, I think, I think the most important point from what I have to say is that we just need to get in the game. Um, these other sectors have been using compensation in very dynamic ways, figuring out what works and then figuring out how to make it work better for decades. And in education, we're still sitting around saying, oh, I don't know if it's going to be perfect. I don't really know if it's going to work. And we just need to try it. We have good evidence that will give us some guidance about how to get started and how to make these work. But we're failing our students in the meantime as we wait for the perfect solution. We are not using our money. We're not directing it toward the things that we say we value. And so my biggest takeaway from these other sectors is that we need to skip that first question. We're not asking anymore whether or not this is going to work. We're asking how. How do we make it work? Thanks. Thank you. These are two really interesting papers. And both Dan and Julie mentioned that working conditions are important, but that pay has to be part of the conversation, and it's more amenable to policy intervention. But I also think that people create working conditions. One of the most important working conditions is having a strong principal, having like-minded colleagues in a school. And that leads us to Victoria, who's going to be talking about recruitment. Are these all on? OK. Um, so I wanted to just uh, start with some general comments on Julie and Dan's uh, papers. Um, you know, I think one of the things that Julie said that is so interesting to me is this notion of the portfolio of incentives and the fact that, you know, it is the norm in so many other sectors. And I think one of the powerful things to explore there is that when it is, when you do have something like a broad, a, a broad array of things to put on the table that you can kind of, in some ways that could potentially depoliticize de um, some of the dialogue around differential pay, right? It helps d diffuse the debate and say, like, you know, look, it, it's expensive to live in D.C., San Francisco, New York. What do we do about that, right? There is a, there is a way that this moves it from the, the, um, the noise that exists around performance pay and just gets at, I think, the, the basics of the, of, the, of the labor market, as they said. And, and, and I think that notion of having several things in a package could help accelerate that. Um, we were at a different meeting, as Jan suggested yesterday, and we were speaking with two teachers at this meeting, and one of the things they were noting was that, um, you know, perhaps more than its power to attract someone to a high-need school, it can have an incredible power to retain someone in a high-need school. And I think, as Julie said, when you've got, when you have tight fiscal times as we have now, being thoughtful and really targeting where we put these incentives could be critical. And these two teachers said, you know, we all hear those, the research that between 30 and 50 percent of teachers leave urban school districts in year, between years four and five, between years three and five. So why don't you do something in year four to get people to stay? Um, and so I think, you know, that just listening to those teachers yesterday and, and taking the, some of the um, insights um, that Julie's offered from other sectors, there just seems like there's a, a lot of promise there um, and, and that there are ways to very much, um, in spite of it being tight financial times, to still be able to maneuver in this market and be able to do something around that. Um, Dan's paper speaks a, a lot to our experience, and, and as he's, as, um, there's a lot of stories I could tell, and in fact, that's where I will run into trouble with time, because I'm sure I will start to tell some stories today. Um, but I think, you know, 
two big things just speak, well, actually three things speak to um, my experience from Dan's paper. And one is obviously the need for data. You're going to hear me talk throughout this about, like, I wish we had some data to really know um, around some of the things that we we are experiencing um, day-to-day in school districts. Um, Second, obviously, expansion of the pipeline for our organization, we think, is a hugely viable, scalable um, opportunity to help change the equitable distribution of, the, of teacher quality in our urban school districts. And, um, and third, this notion in Dan's paper that he spoke to, that, that you didn't spend quite as much time on it here, but in the paper you have a section where you talk about initial match, where people are first hired, and how that has um, a, a, a lasting and perhaps growing a, effect on this unequal distribution of teacher quality. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of speak to all three of those. Um, today and and so I, I will briefly say who my organization is if you don't know I um, I'm with an organization national nonprofit called the new teacher project and we really focus on bringing career changers into the classroom as, as teachers um, we've been around for about 11 years and in that time we've brought over 33,000 new teachers to urban public schools across the country um, in, in a given year for example last year we got over 43,000 applications for 3,200 positions so there are people out there who you absolutely can target who want to go into the highest need settings. That, that, that is what our messaging is about. That's who we're seeking, and we are seeking these people in sorted subject areas. Um, the 3,200 that we hired last year, 81% were in subject areas like math, science, special education. Um, 80, 87% of them went to teach in Title I schools, so they are going where they're needed most. Um, 34% of them are teachers of color. And their average undergraduate GPA was 3.3. So high quality, the kinds of people that we want to see in, in, in urban schools. And and I think one of the things that Dan's paper toward the end raised a big question for me, then this is the, the data question where I wish we had some more information and this is something I'd like to understand. He writes in, at, toward the end of the paper that, um, that, that it's been kind of studied that, that New York City changed its pipeline. We, we run a huge program in New York City called the New York City Teaching Fellows. We bring about 2,000 teachers in shortage subject areas to that district per year. And, and that program, along with Teach for America and some other things that were happening in the city, really helped change the equitable distribution of, of teacher quality characteristics in areas like Brooklyn and the Bronx. And so we, we know that we can start to level the playing field in that way. And, and one of the things you had mentioned was that it looks like similar things have happened in Chicago between 05 and 08. Is that right? It's actually earlier. Oh, two to... I, I think that it was sort of stopped at 06. Okay, so so one of the um, things I had noticed, you know, I, I read that, and what it ra- the question, and I think you had said something like, and it didn't seem like they'd done different things around the pipeline, but but a couple of things did happen around the pipeline. We started working with Chicago around 0405, and we started a teaching fellows program there. We're about 11% of their annual hires. Teach for America is around 5% of their hires. So you've got a 16% change in pipeline coming in. A, th- a, th- a third thing we did was we helped them with their student teaching program. We, we help them restructure how they, how they get student teachers, where they're placed, and, and the efforts to try to get those people to then take a job when they graduate in those schools. So we kind of really focused in on their student teacher program. Um, we see Chicago overall as a pretty high-functioning HR department. They, they are one of the better departments. We work with about 25 school districts a year. They're one of the strongest HR teams that we see. They do do more on screening and selection and recruitment than we see in a lot of other places, and they've got a rich talent pool in Chicago. You've got a lot of universities graduating teachers. Um, and they have, I would say, the most progressive and flexible union contract in the nation on staffing provisions. There is a ton of flexibility and autonomy for schools to make the choices about who they hire into their buildings. And so the, a question for me is, you know, they have, you've seen in a rather short amount of time that they have done something significant to address the equitable distribution of quality 
in in the district and i and i you know it just raised a big question for me all right if you if you are you know are there some levers such as the ones i've just listed that you could push on that we that we can accelerate this rate of change um i'm going to talk a little bit about some incentive work that we've done and i think one of the biggest problems with incentives is is it's a trickle effect at best um if you are offering chunks of money to get people to go into high need schools as the North Carolina study might have showed like some will do it some will take it some will go but it's not enough at the rate that we need to be transformative in those buildings you're going to get a couple of people to, 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 to take the money and and make the jump for the hazard pay kind of thing um, and so I just you know I, I, I was struck by that Chicago paragraph to go to think like wow all right we've got some things that that are pointing to something I wish we had some data or, or you know that's your next paper go look at what happened in Chicago and and document that um, and so one of the ways that, you know, we work with districts is to try to boost their pipeline, to, to put schools in the position of being more selective, especially in the shorted subject areas. Um, you know, our average district partner, we're probably about 23% of all of their annual hires. And so you look at places like, um, Baltimore, we were about 28% of their hires last year. And we've been steadily that about over the course of about four years. And Baltimore is a city where their rate of student achievement has been steadily upticking year by year. It's incremental, but it's going in the right direction. And I often have to wonder, like, what is happening? If you know, how do we how do we get to look back and know that the quality of the pool is is a part of that effect? There are lots of other things going on in the district, all kinds of instructional reforms, all kinds of supports and and things happening at other levels. But but what piece does this pool does this expansion of the pool play in that effort? And that is something I would love to see more research on, um, and and to have you know some real numbers. Um, tied around that. I think our, you know, as an organization, our, our kind of thesis or reaction to the, to um, this notion of, you know, incentives would probably be that they are definitely a nice to have. We know that, that we know that money matters. We know that it could have an effect. We'd all love to see um, it being used very strategically to help um, bring more folks in. But we would say it's probably not a must have. Um, I think that as, as I, I was discussing yesterday, you know, we, we get thousands of applicants every year in cities like Baltimore, Oakland, Chicago, New York, you know, pick a high need urban city. We are working there. We know that we can get people who want to go into these buildings. The the problem that we see is is that nobody is actually staffing schools. Urban school districts hire teachers. They just hire. They do not staff. Nobody really thinks about we've got this pool of talent. Who is the right fit for for this school and that particular classroom and those kids? No, nobody. There is very, you know, when you look at how the pool of new teachers are treated every year in terms of a of a labor market, there is very minimal screening. You know, are you certified? Check. Okay. There is certainly no thought to anyone, any individual's unique strengths or differences. It, it, the saddest thing to me is that that in our processes, and and I would even frankly say sometimes in our contracts, we treat teachers like they're a widget. You are a plug and play unit, and I and I can put you here or I can put you there, and you just go do a good job. I don't care that you know you're 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 strong on content, but you're weak in classroom management. Well, that principal is really strong on content, and he's kind of weak with supporting people in terms of classroom management. Go. Good luck. You know, we, we don't match people's strengths and weaknesses. We don't give thought to how we fill vacancies. Um, I will tell you on a daily basis when we work with schools that, that there is no clear role or responsibility defined between who owns staffing. Is it the principal or is it HR? Is it the, you know, school hiring committee, whatever it might be? Who's responsible? Who shuttles the candidate back and forth? Who owns that it has to happen? You know, at most you have this position control. Like, I, you know, HR is going to say, I will, I will flick the budget switch and I will give you the money or I won't. But 
where how you get the candidate and and how you decide if it's the right person for you nobody owns that um, and our organization has written a lot on timeline barriers and, and, and the effects that a lot of our policies, when budgets are released to schools, um, how seniority transfers and how we deal with surplus teachers, how all of that affects the hiring timeline. We know from our research that these delays that are caused by just policy and practice hurt the highest need schools most. They are last in line to get access to the top, ta top talent in our applicant pool. And so I go back to that we, we have to get some basics right. There are, some, there are some fundamental management things that we've got to be doing better. Um, because when the deeply per committed person calls and says, I want to teach in your school, well, someone needs to return that phone call within 24 hours. Um, and, you know, you can't send them to a building with terrible working conditions and a weak principal and then throw your hands up when they leave the profession in three to five years. Um, and so I, I worry that the fundamental challenge with trying to push through a packet of, you know, radical incentives is that the foundation upon which we're layering it is, is broken, right? You are constantly layering good ideas on top of bad practice and bad policy. Um, and so we, you know, we have two areas of, ex of experience with, with these issues. One is we have just begun a pilot study to look at, I, I'm kind of calling it a transfer incentive for lack of a better name, but, but last year we, we have a federally funded research project that we've, we've launched, and last year was just the feasibility year. Can, will this produce the effective study design that we need to, to go look at this issue? But basically we were, we were working with a one district, and we went into the district and we found, we found, we said, tell us who your high value add teachers are. We're going we're gonna to look at three years of student achievement linked to their teachers and figure out who consistently makes significant gains with their kids three years in a row. And 70 teachers cropped up, right? So, so this, the researchers did that piece. We're the, we're the implementation leg. So we started hounding these 70 folks, stalking them to say, would you be willing to transfer from your current school to a high-need, low-performing school for $20,000 for two years, 10K a year, if you will go take this position? We probably worked for five months, and we were barely able to get four people to take the money. We were supposed to get two eighth-grade math teachers and two elementary teachers. We, we could not get two eighth-grade math teachers. We got one. And so we switched to three elementary. It was um, an incredibly stunningly challenging task to get the four. And the thing that frightens me is the, the, the study is now got the green light to go forward. We're supposed to find 100 this year across a number of districts. And I, I believe I've been set up to fail in some ways. But, but um, the, you know, the stories they consistently told us were that the, the kind of teacher who's a high-value ed teacher is deeply involved and committed to their school. They coach debate. They coach the sports. They, the, the, you know, my favorite was the guy who told me I just wrote a grant to get a whiteboard for my classroom. I have my whiteboard coming, and I'm like, twenty thousand dollars will buy a lot of whiteboards. Come on, you know, didn't want to go. Um, and so, so it, you know, and another I think troubling thing that we saw in this was there was a touch of a redistribution myth, and and and. And it wasn't like you're taking people from the Tony Posh neighborhood to go to the really poor neighborhood. We were taking people from the 70% free and reduced lunch to go to the 95% free and reduced lunch. Now, certainly different environments, more challenging at the 95, 99, you know, free and reduced lunch, but plenty of poor kids in the school that we are taking that talented teacher from. So it was also, you know, where people sat. There, there, there was clustering certainly at the, you know, at the higher SES end, but there were HVA teachers all over. Uh, and so I, it, what, what we saw in the folks that we ended up pulling was that 61% um, of them currently taught in what was already a district-identified low-performing school of the, of the 70. 85% of them had prior experience teaching in a lower-performing school, so they'd been there and probably transferred to something maybe slightly easier. Um, 
and of and and three out of the four that we took um who took the bonus had were, were currently teaching in a relatively low performing school and all of them had formerly taught at low performing schools so so the money attracted the already willing in, in in some ways i guess is how i might encapsulate that um and and so the 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 thing that I think you know echoes what those teachers told me yesterday is it's not about using the money to incent someone to go somewhere. Use the money to keep people where they are. A lot of these people were already in high need schools. How do we how do we perhaps use that money to say good job? And this was the other the, the third sad thing I think that we learned. I will tell you, I, countless teachers of, of the seventy when we first reached out to them to say congratulations, you're a high value add teacher for three years. You have shown gains with your kids. Blah 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 blah. They all said I am. No, no one ever told me. Um, so the fact that nobody seems to get performance feedback or, or the level of feedback that is either the pat on the back of like, good job, like, please stay, um, or, or, or maybe it's a true understanding of the data that they're getting on a regular basis on, you know, in terms of test scores and things like that. So there, you know, there was some disconnect between these folks not even understanding or knowing what a, what a strong, solid job they were doing year to year. Um, so how much... One minute? Okay, I have three pages of notes left. Um, I, will, I will just go back to my, my uh, you know, a quick point on getting the basics right. Um, last year, we, we went to, we worked with eight districts, and we said, give us your lowest performing schools. Give me 20 to 40 of your schools that are in six-year corrective action, and, and let us staff them. Let us be responsible for filling the vacancies in those buildings. We filled over 1,550 vacancies last year in 163 schools, and, and, and that would be the equivalent of staffing a Boston or a Cleveland or a Seattle or a, a, a Fort Worth. Um, the, the key things we did were to push the hiring earlier. Over 50% of the vacancies were filled by June 30th, and these are schools that in, in their past history would fill 70 to 85% of their, their um, positions three weeks before school starts, right? So we said get out there before everybody else to get the best. Before they're snatched up, that's gonna, we're going to hire early. Um, push them to hire early. We just provided individualized support. No, no school or hiring committee or principal wants to hire in the same way. So we customized our approach. What do you want? You want emails, phone calls? You want me to call your secretary? You want me to call the AP? Who's going to manage hiring in your building? Let's teach you to set up a good process. We train them on how to make, we train them on how to develop a school fit model. Who's going to be good in your building? Here's how you screen for that in an interview. So we taught them how to use competencies, taught them how to do a good interview in practice. And, and we've been working with these districts for a couple years now. And what we've seen in San Francisco was two years of working with these folks. The first year, these 20 schools, 20 failing schools, the 20 worst schools in San Francisco, were generating a quarter of the district's separations. In one year, it went down to 12%. So when some thought is given to how we staff our high-need schools and some matching and some support given, in one year we seem to have cut that turnover rate by 12%. Now there could be tons of other things going on in the district that did that. I cannot claim you know, that, that our efforts made that difference, but, but the data is significant. And if we are any part of that, I am thankful and glad and want to keep pushing on it. Same thing happened in Baltimore. We reduced turnover in the 40 schools by, by 13%. So we are seeing this work stabilize hopefully stabilize our highest need buildings um, and and you know at the end of the day we're working to reduce this inequitable distribution of teacher quality just by holding ourselves accountable for staffing schools as early as possible with the strongest candidates we can find and holding a school's hand to say let's make sure we get the best teacher that's the right fit for your building and I will I will leave it there Victoria it seems like there's a huge opportunity with district human resource practices but maybe we can talk about that a little bit later Sagun uh, good afternoon, folks. Uh, thanks uh, for uh, inviting us to participate. I will start by saying that Dan is right, basically, that uh, those of you looking for the loyal union opposition may be a bit disappointed today. 
uh, uh, but I hope to add some thoughts and maybe even uh, provoke us a little bit in some areas that we haven't, uh, we haven't yet talked about and addressed. Uh, certainly, uh, from, from our perspective, the National Education Association, which for those of you who don't know is a 3.2 million member teacher and support staff organization uh, throughout the country, uh, this, this issue of, of staffing high-need schools has been uh, a central one of, of, uh, of concern to us. We have uh, been working for, uh, particularly for a significant number of years on some initiatives around uh, ensuring great public schools for every child, dealing with issues of equity, and uh, without question, the, uh, the, uh, the deplorable nature of these schools, one key element of which is the inequitable distribution of our best and most talented teachers, is a disgrace uh, of which we both share responsibility and accountability and want to work toward uh, solving. Uh, and so in that regard, we certainly have welcomed the great work that, uh, that Dan and Julie have done and, and many others around trying to bring uh, a myriad of issues around staffing uh, high-need schools to the forefront. Uh, with, uh, in, in, uh, in our review of the paper, again, there's, there's so little that, that, uh, that we would uh, vehemently oppose. I think all of the recommendations are significant. I would uh, point to uh, a couple uh, of areas that uh, we think are particularly promising, uh, and uh, both uh, Dan and, and Julie talked about the idea of targeting pools of, of willing candidates and looking at, uh, at, uh, at expanding the pool of candidates. And I think one thing that I don't think we've talked about a lot yet is just looking at the demographics of the teaching workforce that currently exists. Uh, the reality is if you want to uh, uh, look at the non-scientific description, a typical American public school teacher is still a relatively young white woman who grew up in, an, in a suburban community who wants to teach close to home. And given that that is still what predominates the pool of folks who are in the profession and are, and are entering it, this idea of, uh, of expanding this pool of candidates who, who are willing and able to teach in the highest uh, need schools is incredibly important. I will say that, uh, that there are great, uh, that Dan offered some examples like uh, Teach for America and the New Teacher Project, but there are some tremendously uh, effective programs out there uh, that have uh, been implemented, that have been proven through study and research to be effective, but which get very little uh, support or leverage, uh, mainly because many of them, which we identify as grow your own programs, uh, don't get that kind of we need teachers in September payoff that our schools are looking for. Programs that encourage paraeducators who are already in the schools to become fully licensed teachers programs that focus on uh, recruiting at the community college level where many of our candidates of color are already uh, are already there and candidates who live and work in urban communities are already there. Candidate uh, programs which focus on uh, at the high school uh, in these very high need schools that we need to fix and help those folks who are there to both be prepared for college, be successful in college, and look at careers in education all have proven through, uh, through both research and practice to be extremely effective, very few of which get much policy or attention or resource attention in, in, this, uh, in this issue. Uh, so we, we definitely want to bring that to the forefront. Um, I will, uh, in, in really looking at, I think, issues that I would say questions or concerns or what we think is missing, uh, there are probably a, a, a couple that I would focus on. 
Uh, and the first, and I think our colleague, my colleagues mentioned some of this in their paper, but I think it's worth uh, uh, really talking about in more detail. Uh, the first is the interplay between compensation and, uh, and, and licensure and qualifications. And, uh, and I was looking, I, I like the, this concept, Julie, of that, the fact that folks in, in, in other fields talk about the no-brainer of using compensation as an incentive. I didn't find in the paper and would, would guess that these same folks would think of it as a no-brainer that if you're looking to staff your hard-to-staff positions, you don't do so by lowering the requirements for the skills, knowledge, and abilities that one needs to do the job effectively. And far too often, our approach to staffing our hard-to-staff schools is to lower standards for entry for folks to enter into the profession. I would venture to guess, in fact, that many other industries provide additional support or training or resources for these folks who are going into these significantly challenging jobs rather than the opposite. So I think this issue of, uh, of, uh, of really looking at the interplay between compensation and skills, knowledge, and qualifications is incredibly important. Uh, as, uh, as my colleague Victoria talked about, uh, I would also add that uh, this focus on, on using incentives for retention is critically important. I think it's talked about in the, in the research, it was talked about in the reports, but in practice what you see are recruitment incentives, uh, much more often than you see the kinds of incentives that it takes to get people into uh, and keep them into, in these positions in which they're needed. Uh, and so very often what could end up happening with recruitment incentives is you just in fact, make your revolving door more effective, and uh, and uh, and I, I I venture to say that's not uh, what I think uh, we need to do. Uh, the last piece uh, around before I go into what we think some of our own uh, recommendations that we'd like to add and throw into the mix is a caution around uh, what I would say is a laser focus on financial incentives. Clearly, uh, 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 both of my colleagues in their reports talked about the fact that research is relatively clear that other, uh, other factors are either equally or more important to recruiting and retaining teachers in high-need schools than our financial incentives. Julie just talked about the fact, for example, that we ought to be engaged in separate discussions around working conditions, which we agree with. And I, I think, our, well, while my colleagues talked about this, I would certainly, from a policy perspective, want to bring out, from my own experience, Probably in the last five years, I've been to in three or four discussions like this around teacher working conditions and school working conditions, and 30 or 40 discussions like this around financial incentives for teachers. Uh, and so this idea that, uh, uh, and, and Julie called it, uh, cautioned us against using compensation as a silver bullet. And from a policy perspective, I think we really need to, uh, to be careful of that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in just another minute. So um, based on that, I think our approach from, uh, from the National Education Association is that financial incentives are indeed a valuable and useful strategy for staffing high-need schools but they'll succeed only if they are a part of a broader vision for improving the conditions of schools. And that we have a shared goal around that vision and a shared goal around what strategies it would take to improve those, those, uh, uh, improve those conditions. And again, I'm gonna talk just a little bit about that 
uh, as I close. And, but I do want, I, I'm going to add uh, uh, to a list of uh, recommendations that, that we've done and some work that we've done, talk a little bit about uh, that work and, and those recommendations and, and, and close and hopefully engage in a dialogue. Um, first, back in 2005, uh, the NEA was uh, uh, led uh, a, uh, a study group as part of the Learning First Alliance on recruiting and retaining highly qualified teachers and principals in our hardest to staff schools uh, and came up with a, with, with a framework for staffing schools uh, that we thought all elements needed to be addressed if we were going to address the issue of staffing high need schools. Those elements included school leadership, working conditions, professional support, incentives, preparation, hiring and placement, policy coherence, and funding. Each of these, I think, is again on one level or another, was has has been addressed in the reports that uh, that you hopefully will get a chance to read and review in in great detail. Uh, but again, you notice that the incentives is certainly a component of uh, of this challenge, but one which we need to face in a much broader level. Um, I think we get caught up, uh, no matter how much we say it here at the table about taking broad perspectives and as. Uh, uh, we get caught up in looking at what we think is easy or what we think is doable. So I think we need to really look at a broader approach. Uh, the other thing we've done, of course, we're the Teachers Association. We talked to our members. We, uh, over the course of the last three years, sponsored six statewide summits uh, about, about teaching in high-need schools. We invited the states, what we determined as the states most qualified candidates, particularly we invited in those states, every teacher in that state who had achieved national board certification from the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards. So we asked our best and our brightest teachers, what would it take for you to teach in high-need schools? They had great conversation and great dialogue, and they essentially came up with five overall core recommendations, again, some of which I think uh, are, are you'll see as very familiar, and, and I'll highlight a couple of them. One, transform the teaching and learning conditions in high-need schools. We've, uh, we, we talk about the difficulty of that challenge, but I want to talk about the necessity of that in just a moment. Two, prepare and support teachers for the specific challenges posed by working in high-need schools. One of the things I didn't hear enough about uh, yet that I hope to bring on the table is teaching in these schools requires some additional skills, knowledge, and abilities that teachers need to bring to the table with them. It requires additional support, additional professional development, and additional training, which we need to provide them. Three, develop and uh, recruit and develop administrators who can draw on the expertise of specially prepared teacher leaders. Four, create a menu of recruitment incentives, but focus on growing teacher expertise within high-need schools. So again, the, the, the idea, and, and Dan did talk about this some, but the idea somehow that we're going to recruit the zero-sum game, we're going to recruit uh, teachers from high-performing schools into low-performing schools as the key answer uh, neglects the fact that we have folks who are willing, folks who are working hard every day in these high-need schools, many of whom with the right kinds of supports uh, uh, and the right kinds of training uh, can indeed meet the kinds of expectations that, that we expect. And then the final recommendation was build an awareness about the importance of national board certification and other teacher excellence in high-need schools. The idea of building these cohort of excellent teachers to move, uh, to move these policy issues forward. So uh, what I would say about these is, is again, 
without question, compensation and financial incentives is a piece to the puzzle. I got one minute. That's good. I got one minute worth of things to say. Uh, and so I, I, I applaud my colleagues who talk about the fact that, that there are other more critical issues or equally critical issues around financial incentives. Um, I do question their, uh, their supposition that these other working conditions challenges are either easier or, or, more, uh, or less amenable to policy manipulation. Uh, than others, and, and I think that's, that's a worthy discussion we might have. But even if they're harder, even if the policy challenge is harder, I think we would uh, be, uh, really need to focus on the moral challenge that this issue presents and keep that front and center in our discussions. I think that the concept that we ought to pay teachers more, the, to, that, that the comparison which is a very legitimate comparison, but the fact that, th that we want to compare teaching in these schools to welding at the top of a tall building or being in the front line of, of, of enemy fire in the military is a moral disgrace and something that I think we really want to keep at the front of our agenda when we look at building real comprehensive uh, solutions to this. The concept that teaching America's poor and black and brown children in America's hardest to staff schools is uh, that, that fixing the conditions in those schools is not our number one priority. Uh, is if, if we don't keep that as our front and center, think of financial incentives as a short-term immediate fix, but be focused on a vision and a real strategy so that it's not just financial incentives, let's measure it and see what happens, and if that doesn't work, we'll think of something else. We ought to be having comprehensive strategies for which whether or not we do financial incentives first, second, or third is part of a larger strategy about how we fix the conditions in which those schools are. So apparently I had two minutes worth of things to say rather than one, <laughs> but I'll leave it at that and look forward to the discussion. Thank you for your comments about our addressing a broader vision. We don't think at CAP that incentives are the only thing that matter or will be effective on their own, and I don't think the other panelists think that as well. Um, Corey? Good afternoon. Is this on? It's on, isn't it? Well, thank you um, for having me here today to discuss Tennessee's experiences with addressing teacher equity. Oh, now it's on. And I'm um, thankful. Thank you to you all for being here today as well. Um, I look forward to our discussion, um, which should be coming up pretty soon. Um, thanks to Dan and to Julie for these papers. You've really contributed to our understanding of teachers' preferences and the incentives that we can use to get them to the schools that need them the most. And thanks to Victoria. Um, I know she's really helped us in Tennessee really understand these issues so much better. And Sagun, um, I have to say, we love working with our Tennessee Education Association. And that's one of the best parts of my job. So I really appreciate your all's perspective. Um, <laughs> um, I like to um, often start with a student story. So if you'll allow me to do that, I'd like to do that. Um, a few years ago, the Tennessee Department of Education convened a summit of officials from its largest urban districts. And they also invited a group of high school students from a local high school and there was a very struggling high school, and they were advocating for state and local policies that would help prepare and to guide them for college. 
So they came and they gave a presentation and then um, they stayed for the rest of the day and they all sat on the front row and it was wonderful. And the next session facilitator, he was an expert on educational equity and he asked the audience, what does equity mean to you? Well, before any of the adults in the room even had time to process what question he was asking, one of the young ladies' hands shot up and she said, equity is when everyone gets what they need to succeed. And in Tennessee, we're really fortunate. We have um, a lot of data um, with our Tennessee value-added assessment system. And it has really um, told us some really good stories about what students, what she and students like her really do need to succeed. Um, since 1992, we've been focusing on individual student progress. And in 1996, we also started looking at individual teachers and their own students' progress and really isolating um, each teacher's unique contribution to student learning. And these um, data, again, have told us a great story. And Governor Bredesen likes to say that it's a story filled with hope and optimism. First, the data tell us that teachers matter the most to student learning that no other input in the educational process even comes close to matching the impact of teachers. Students fortunate to have the best ones, year after year especially, will make extraordinary academic gains. Now this story is repeated a lot in the literature, but it really isn't common knowledge, even in Tennessee. I think it's important to remember that. The second thing that these data tell us is that learning, learning, has nothing to do with race or with income. A black student and a white student assigned to the same teacher, they're going to make about the same amount of progress each year. A student in poverty and a student not in poverty assigned to the same teacher, again, they tend to make the same amount of progress each year. Again, this optimistic story isn't that widely known. What is known is that Tennessee, like the nation as a whole, suffers from wide disparities in the educational achievement of its citizens. Now, in addition to um, investments in pre-K, which is so important to us, we're taking a really two-pronged strategy in Tennessee to right this ship in K-12 education. First, under Governor Bredesen's leadership, we've dramatically raised our academic expectations for all of our students, every single one of them. Um, we've joined the American Diploma Project, and we've committed to a college and work readiness agenda for all kids. This year's eighth graders, again, all of them, I can't say that enough, will be the first to graduate under a new diploma that requires um, additional requirements, including four years of math. And next year, all students in grades three through eight and in high school will be taking new, more rigorous assessments where proficient means prepared for the next level. The second thing that we're focusing on is recruiting, selecting, and preparing um, a new generation of effective teachers who can take these higher expectations and translate them into extraordinary learning gains for all of our students. Uh, so these are strategies that um, we think are gonna raise achievement across the board for Tennessee students, but especially for those in the greatest need. So how do we start thinking about things from an equity perspective and especially thinking about teachers? Um, well, it actually started with NCLB. In 2006, the Tennessee Department of Education started its compliance with the teacher equity provisions within Title II of NCLB. We did what we were told. We analyzed the distribution of teachers by experience and also by education level 
for both schools with high and low proportions of students in poverty and for high and low proportions of students of color. We found pervasive disparities, as you would imagine, both at the state level, but also Dan, within our largest urban districts. And some of these disparities were enormous. Um, we started thinking about, because we never really thought about things this way before, what are some things we can do? And one of the things we thought about is we could see there are so many new teachers going directly into these high poverty schools. We thought, mm, maybe we need to stop that. Maybe we need to create some limits on that. But then we really wondered if that was the right strategy. So what we did is we partnered with um, Dr. Bill Sanders, who is the architect of the Tennessee Value Added Assessment System. And together we actually analyzed the distribution of effective teachers um, by the poverty and minority level of the schools. We found some really striking results. Yes, high poverty, high minority schools have a lot of novice teachers, but actually a lot of them were among the state's most effective teachers. So within our high poverty, high minority schools, we have a lot of really fantastic teachers. Um, we're just not doing a really good job of keeping them there after five years. But still, while they're there, they're really having a huge impact. So um, we started to decide to get the word out and also to ask our biggest districts to um, look at these issues and deal with them as they can do best. We worked with the Appalachian Regional Comprehensive Center, which is Tennessee's Comprehensive Center, and um, we got the word out to educators across the state through some web seminars. We um, followed up by requiring teams from the six largest urban districts in the state to develop teacher equity plans. Um, again, Julie wanted to make sure that they were gonna meet both local needs and to take advantage of local resources. The teams included the superintendent, the HR director, the Title I director, but also a representative from the Teachers Association, um, the Mayor's Office, and the Public Education Foundation. A lot of these people hadn't really gotten together before to really talk about these issues, so that was really valuable. We had a statewide conference, which allowed um, districts teams from um, districts like Hamilton County, Chattanooga, who have been dealing with this for a really long time and seeing great success, um, to share their work and success with the other districts. Um, and we gave them, again, technical assistance, both from the Tennessee Department, but also our partners in the Comprehensive Center and the Content Center, the National Center for Teaching Quality. So today, all of the districts have submitted their teacher equity plans, and they've been approved, and which they needed to do to get their Title I funds. The plans included a number of innovations for these particular districts. In some districts, schools in need of improvement, or Title I schools in general, would receive first dibs on teachers at recruitment fairs. Um, in some, they were revising their teacher transfer policies for the first time. Many of the districts will be training their principals on how to make more effective hiring decisions. And in some districts, bonuses for the very first time will be offered for teachers who go to high need schools. Um, some districts are even dealing with the retention issue tying any performance bonuses to retention. So teachers have to show up the next year and teach before they can get their bonus. Um, now around the same time, the state legislature in Tennessee approved legislation that requires all school districts to come up with differentiated pay plans and required that the plans address the needs for teachers in high need schools as well as high need subjects. Um, again, we wanted to make sure that each district was able to come up with the strategies that made the most sense for them. 
the same legislation, um, this is a little bit off topic, but I think it's really important, also required um, our State Board of Education to develop a report card on all of our teacher training programs. And that report card also has to include the teacher value-added teacher effectiveness data on how well their graduates are doing once they get into the classroom. So the report card was published last week. It's super exciting, and you can find it on the State Board's website. And, school, and um, it's already helping um, teacher preparation programs and school districts really focus on um, how they can improve the work that they do to serve their districts better. So Tennessee found really great inspiration from Chicago and New York, um, the research results there, showing that state and local policies have had a real difference in the qualifications of teachers and closing teacher quality gaps. Um, combined with the hope and optimism from our own data, we really believe that Tennessee students are poised to make tremendous gains. So across the nation, federal policies are going to make a major difference. Um, the teacher equity provision within NCLB was the catalyst for driving us to identify disparities of teacher quality and teacher effectiveness um, between schools. Um, we would not have done it without that provision. We never would have thought about it. Federal funding has also been essential in helping districts finance their teacher equity initiatives. And the Federal Comprehensive Centers, I can't say enough about them, they really provided us great assistance, both analyzing our data and helping us um, find the tools that we needed to help with school districts. So by requiring states and to analyze their own data and forge their own paths to improvement, Congress and the Department of Education um, can really drive states and school districts to focus on what matters most, finding the absolute best teachers that are out there and getting them to the students who need them the most. So thank you all. Thanks, Corey. I think what's really interesting about the analysis that Tennessee did is it's one of the few research studies that actually looked at teacher distribution using value-added data. I haven't seen other, other research like that. So now I want to give you a moment to respond to each other on the panel, if anybody would like to do that. Sure. Comments? Go ahead. Um, so I have, a, I have a bunch of totally disjointed comments. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to, no, I'm not going to even try and weave them together. I'm just going to throw them all out there. Uh, I, I guess I was, I was struck by, um, I think um, both Julia and, and Victoria said, talked about the fact that you could get the right people into the right situation. It doesn't necessarily mean that you don't want to give them additional incentives, but it suggests that we could be doing a whole lot better than we are currently doing if, um, if we just had people do it in a smarter ways. And I guess just anecdotally, my, my impression is that um, HR offices in school districts are always kind of a backwater. And there's a uh, an emphasis of doing things the way that they were all, always done, and, and they're oftentimes staffed by former teachers, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's quite different than some of what you would see in the private sector, where you'd get people who are really expert at doing um, HR kind of business and, and might think about things in a different way than just their immediate predecessor had, had thought about them. So I, I think that there's a, a lot of work that is not so much research work, but wor just work on capacity that can, can be done. Can I interject one thing? So we're a nonprofit of 200 people that essentially our work is HR work. We have never hired a single individual coming with an HR background. Oh. And I would 
suggest that you probably don't want to do that. <laughs> well, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know who. I don't know who gets hired. But I. But I. I am struck by the fact that HR offices are don't. It just seems like there's an institutional inertia there's, about the way that things are are done, absolutely. and that we just can't to make progress on this issue. We just can't have that. Yeah. Is, is the bottom line. See, address that. Hey, I, <laughs> I haven't Is finished anyone? my reaction. Oh, okay, yet. go ahead. Um, I, and I'm not going to answer that question because I don't have the. I don't. I don't think I have a, a good answer to to that question. Um, okay, so that was one one reaction. Another reaction is, and that's this is more based on yesterday that we're going to have real problems finding money for any of this stuff. And so I would just offer up a, a source of money in the existing system that I think could be spent better. And we could probably talk a lot more about this. But I have to say the master's pay premium, the way that it is currently done, does not look like a good expenditure of money. And I think that people enter into um, teaching with a social contract. So you're not going to, you know, it's not like you're going to take something away from people who currently get this. But there's a lot of money going forward paying people for master's degrees that are not necessarily, as, that are, are not, are found consistently not to be associated with, with um, student achievement. And when you look at the system, it's not really a surprise. And there's just a lot of money going into that, that structure that could be spent in better ways. And I think I'll, I will, uh, well, yeah, actually, one, one more, two more comments. Um, on working conditions, it needs to be relative change. So I think that they, they need to get better, and there are probably some base conditions, as I, m I mentioned. But to, to get teachers in, into schools where it's a harder job, if you're going to do it based on working conditions, the working conditions at those schools need to be relatively better. And that's just not the way that people typically talk about that issue. They talk about improving working conditions as the di in a district as a whole. Hey, I'm all for that. You know, it, it might have a, uh, an impact on the, the profession and who enters, but it's not going to change, in, at least theoretically, it shouldn't change the distribution. Um, and then there's this issue about that came up about um, different kinds of financial incentives. And I just have to say, as an, an, as an economist, I kind of like the, the pay incentives better than the other, other, other financial you know, in, in incentives like loan repayment, housing subsidies, et cetera, because there are a lot of teachers that are counseled out of the profession in early years. It never shows up on performance reviews for reasons that would take too long to explain. But if you put a lot of money into um, loan programs early on, you're going to be subsidizing a lot of people who, on their own volition, may not decide to stay in the profession. And school systems may not want them to stay in the profession. Thank you. Does anyone else want to comment? Okay, so let's let's get back to this issue of human resource departments. How can federal policy incent some changes? You know, I, I think one of the things that we saw with this line of work um, was that in, um, we, we call these programs, the eight pro pro projects that I talked about, we called them a model staffing initiative. And it was NCLB that caused districts to call us to say, all right, we are struggling. Take take our historically failing schools and do something. It was, you know, the fact that these are schools in their fourth, fifth, sixth year of corrective action. You know, these are schools that are getting dinged very specifically for, you know, the, the language arts and math, right? Like the quality of the teaching is what was, ha you know, what was hindering these schools from making adequate progress. Um, and so there's certainly, you know, that legislation, I would say, drove districts 
to say we have to do something differently. And we all know that the teacher is the most powerful school-based variable to change the outcomes for kids. And so it, you know, I think, I think, you know, in some ways there's the, the legislation is good for that, right? There's also the bully pulpit notion. Someone's got to be talking about the fact that this is what the legislation has done. It has forced states to take a look. It forced a state to then pull six of its big urbans together to say equity matters. We got to do something differently. We can't keep taking the same approach to these buildings that we've been taking year in, year out. And so there are, you know, I guess I would say let's hold pat on the good things in that and 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 and, and continue to raise awareness of the effects it, that, that that legislation can have and, and encourage other states to do the kinds of things that Tennessee did. Yeah, and TIF as well, the Teacher and Center Fund as well. Yeah, I mean, it there's, I mean, yeah. I think it, has that it has an emphasis on exactly that issue this on distribution. Yeah. yeah, and um, just from working at the state level, that the accountability stuff just gets a whole lot more attention than this teacher equity stuff really didn't get a lot. I don't think it was taken very very seriously. That's the bully by the pulpit, department, right? Like yeah, but the but the accountability highlight. stuff really, and people really focus on that. And um, this is just my, you know, Corey's policy recommendation for the day. But I think that um, LEA corrective action, um, you know, the way that states work with school districts um, when they fall into corrective action is something that we're really just starting to understand. And it's really powerful because the district level capacity issues um, are often the times the cause of what's going on in schools and keeping they're, they're often setting up roadblocks for schools to ever improve. And so the LA Corrective Action, um, one of the options is you can replace and reassign folks within the district who um, are relevant to the district's failure to make adequate early progress. I think it should be pretty explicit about dealing with HR issues. And, you know, whether that's in the legislation or it's in guidance or whatever, I think there should be some sort of explicit um, note made to dealing with some of these issues. I mean, it's going to help the whole district as a whole, but I think especially our most struggling schools as well. Uh, one of the other things I'd add from, from the policy level is, is ways in which to uh, support innovations in the pipeline that look at both uh, uh, quality issues around training and preparation and ways in which to recruit and retain talented and, and uh, uh, quote-unquote non-traditional candidates into the profession. Uh, I think one of the good examples for that is in, in some, of the, uh, some of the various uh, uh, draft legislation that has been out around, uh, around ESEA has been this promotion of a residency model, uh, looking at the fact that so many of our candidates are coming in through, uh, through alternative route programs, which are powerful ways to get uh, talented people, but one of the big uh, criticisms of that has been these folks come in as teachers of record after a few weeks of training. They're usually in our toughest schools with the hardest conditions and are too often set up without the adequate support. So things like residency models and other types of innovative ways that acknowledge both this great and talented pool of candidates who we've begun to tap into and ways in which to support uh, giving them the kind of skills and qualifications that they need to be successful is another, uh, is another way we can support that. Thank you. Dan? Uh, I I, it's this is not a support and I have to say I'm skeptical about about the capacity building c emphasis but I think that requiring um, real dollar accounting would force school systems to um, to, to have their human resource departments do some, do things differently mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Okay, we're going to open questions to the audience. I'd like to take any questions from the press first. Are there any press here? Okay. Yes, sir. Um, Mark Nadell. Uh, the question for the whole panel, but in particular for Dan, um, because it's a matter of labor economics. Um, I see an inherent tension in the, one of the premises, sort of the first question that Julie said we could sort of ease over of, um, suppose you could do a great job, and in my heart I would like to see us target the most effective teachers where they're needed most, the districts that, that need them. Um, another part of me, though, is very devoted to my own child. Me, and I assume most of the people in this audience, if they live in an upper middle class area, want their kids to get effective teachers, not below average effective teachers, but at least average or, or above. Now, if the most effective teachers are going to the most disadvantaged and also to the upper middle class, and I assume the upper class are going to bid, are you going to get a bidding war? Because who ends up in the equilibrium with the least effective teachers? So I, I guess I have um, two, two responses. One, I think on a fundamental level, there is a, you know, there is this tension. And that it's, the, the, it's a tension that exists in all kinds of things in society. It, it's a tension that exists when we think about, um, about health care and do we spend our tax dollars to subsidize somebody else's health care. And I guess I, w I would put it to you that, that on uh, some issues, to be specific, where there are externalities, that there are real benefits to having um, people other than you, you know, your kids do well. And there's some research that's come out that suggests that how well students in the U.S. do on these te international tests is really connected to the, to the growth of the uh, gross domestic product in, in ways that I think people hadn't realized um, previously. So I, I think that there are some benefits that, that accrue to everyone even if other kids, it's not your kids who are getting the, the better teachers. So that's, that's point one is that there's that tension, but I don't think it's, it's as great as, as it might seem on, on first blush. Um, and then the, the um, second point is that there's a, a long line of research that suggests that the kids who benefit the most from high quality teachers are the disadvantaged kids. And so um, moving teachers First of all, we don't have a lot of research about whether teachers who are, are high-value-added teachers in one context are the same people who are high-value-added teachers in other contexts. So I don't know, actually, that this, this tension really exists. Um, but let's, let's presuppose that it does. Even if it does, there's still probably a benefit to moving some of these teachers to um, the disadvantaged kids because they are likely to benefit more. Well, it, it, I think it, I think to some degree it is a zero-sum game, but that as much as we can emphasize n making it not a zero-sum game, then we sidestep that tension altogether. And there are ways that I think the teaching profession could um, be attracting far better candidates and getting a lot more talent into the profession than it currently does. That's a longer, it's a longer discussion. Sigun? 
I would just, I mean, this is a real theoretical question I think is worth ex exploring, even if this zero-sum game uh, concept were, were to materialize. I think that uh, part, of the, part of the potential value for that is our higher performing schools are going to always maintain higher standards for quality. And if we're, it, this idea that somehow if, if higher performing teachers started moving to low performing schools, the idea that our high performing schools would accept the low performing teachers is probably not very political, politically viable and it could provide a, a different kind of pressure on our systems about, about raising the qualification of our teaching workforce. Okay. It's okay. theoretical more than anything else, but. But exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. It would be a bidding war then. Those upper middle class schools are going to say to their school boards, keep, retain those good teachers, or pay, teach for America people who are in the lower performing schools after three years. They now want more time with their families, and the upper middle class school says, I'll give you a better deal, an easier deal, and more money. Can you retain them? bidding war around real teacher quality that would be a good that would be a great problem for education to have so you know like maybe that's where we get to and and I, I hope so <laughs> I, I just want to say this comes goes to the point um, that I made earlier about re rethinking the nature of the job and I'm one of those people who really wants the very best teacher in every single classroom and I am in no way ready to give up on this human capital pipeline as, as a critical solution, but I just want to suggest the idea that we rethink the way that we staff our schools and what these teachers are doing. So if it is quite possible that we can't actually have an excellent teacher in every classroom. So then we need to think about how to spread a great teacher's impact more broadly than just beyond those 30 students in the classroom. And I think, I'm, I'm skeptical of this, but I just have to put it out there that I think technology has a huge role to play in that. In addition to differentiated staffing and coaching and mentors. Exactly. This woman back. Um, thank you. I'm Jennifer Presley, and I was involved in doing the Illinois and Chicago work uh, when I was living in Illinois. I'm now here in D.C. And I just want to say, I think that this notion at the moment that we're talking about taking from the rich and giving to the poor is absolutely a non-issue. And the way Chicago's teacher quality went up over the six years that we looked at it, from 2001 through 2006, was by an enormous change in the new teachers that were coming into the schools in Chicago. And interestingly, we found that, that being a high-quality new teacher trumped their lack of experience. And so we suggested that really challenges some of the notions behind No Child Left Behind and the distribution of new teachers. If you're bringing in strong new teachers, they, they absolutely over, are overcoming the deficits. And so it's not a notion that we're moving teachers around like widgets, um, but we're changing the teaching force, and I think that's where we can make some real positive effort. And I think the new teacher project and Teach for America have shown us that there's a much larger pipeline than we have realized. I guess the question is where the ceiling is, and we don't, we don't know that yet. Thank you. My question is for uh, Dan. Uh, both the Actually, the last question that was just asked, um, that, it, that you can't necessarily uh, uh, identify high-value teachers by the years of experience, uh, seems to cut against uh, some of the uh, uh, meaning in 
looking at the in-district variation in experience where the teachers are. And I also wondered to what extent uh, you took into account uh, the specialty schools that dis within a district that exist where schools set up a, uh, an academy for the students who, who know they want to go to college or they set up an art school or they set up a language immersion and, and uh, those require just for the subjects to be taught um, uh, better uh, qualified or differently qualified teachers and doesn't that affect the in-district uh, uh, variation or, or are you suggesting we should get rid of the specialty schools within districts? Well, I'm 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 not even touch the the specialty schools issue. The the um, research the pies the charts that I put up are from other people's research. In fact, I'm, I can't I I've already forgotten your name, but Jennifer's research is, is some of that. So I can't speak to the the extent to which they were accounting for specialty schools. I can talk about some work that I did in North Carolina, which is along the same lines, which found that. Um, there's also inequities within schools based on classroom ass assignment. So I think that those inequities sort of exist in every, um, you know, at every level that one can look at. And, and remind me the first part of your question. Oh, the experience. Okay. Yeah, th th this, is, this, is a good, this is a good point. The way that the statisticians have tended to look at this issue of does experience, does degree matter, all these things is to, is to um, this is getting in the weeds, but to stick in a variable saying someone has, you know, two years of experience versus being a novice, or they have a master's degree or they don't. And sometimes these things show up as being statistically significant, sometimes not. Master's degree, not, not very rarely, no evidence that it's systematically statistically significant. Experience early on in a career is statistically significant, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of overlap in the distributions. So I, I would have to draw you a picture to show you what I mean. I actually, if you go to the Calder conference tomorrow, I'm going to be putting up those exact pictures. So they're on my, they're on my, my computer over there, but it suggests that if we we're going to make a bet, would you rather have a, a, a two-year teacher or a novice teacher? You, you'd make, you'd be, be uh, well off making the bet on the two-year teacher, but you wouldn't be making a bet where you'd have a 95% chance of being right about the two-year teacher. You're making a bet where you probably got a 60% chance of being right. So as Jennifer pointed out, there are a lot of teachers in that 40% who are going to be novice teachers that are going to be more effective than the two-year teacher. So it doesn't mean that the bet is wrong. It just means that there's a lot of overlap in the distributions. So the bottom line is there's not an inconsistency, although there may be, it seems like there, there is. Hi, I'm Aletta Margolis with Center for Inspired Teaching here in Washington, D.C. And I, have, I was so pleased to hear Sagoon make the point, in fact, I wrote it down because I wanted to say it properly, that um, we can't fix the conditions in poor and urban schools as, as just permanently bad. And we work here in D.C. With, with really struggling schools, and we see when you change the working conditions, the amazing thing that happens with high potential low-performing teachers. And we, we've, I've come to realize in my 20 years working in education that there are quite a few people in the classroom who look like they should leave. And some of them should, but some of them, in fact, have great potential when they have the right conditions. And I wanted to ask about a, con I think you could call it a working condition that I didn't hear you talk about and ask you to comment on it and or 
let us know if there's research being done on it. What we often see among the teachers we work with here in the region is that they, um, the ones who are really innovative, who are really creative, who are really thoughtful, tend to leave the urban schools where they are not allowed to be those things, right? Where they are told, here's the script, don't mess with it because we don't trust you to mess with the script. Um, and so they say, well, I'll go some, I'll either leave the profession or I'll go somewhere where they'll let me use my mind and where they'll invest in my capacity as an educator instead of kind of circumventing my brain. So I'm curious to know, is there research, is that considered a, a part of the working conditions and is there research around that? And, and what can we learn and, and are there policy implications for it? Certainly, I'll say two things. One, and, and maybe our, my research colleagues can point to even more uh, specific research around that. We're seeing in our NEA surveys now that issue cropping up more and more. I think obviously it's been a few years since re the real implementation of, of, uh, of some of the results of No Child Left Behind around standardizing curriculum in, or in urban schools. It is, uh, and some of uh, Ingersoll's work looks at uh, uh, reasons why teachers leave and uh, and some of that is around lack of control around around school curriculum, but it, it those questions don't really get down into the weeds to, to answer in, in much specificity. Uh, the the response to our membership and what we hear people say is relatively overwhelming uh, in in our non scientific daily interaction with our members around what's going on in urban and low performing schools who are who are uh, at, in in ways to be uh, rightfully, in some ways, responsive to the needs of being able to meet the uh, uh, to meet the uh, mandates around testing, to standardizing curriculum, to paying significantly more attention to to curriculum pacing and what day you're on what page and on what chapter in the book, and that's very frustrating for uh, for uh, for our urban teachers. Uh, there are a whole lot of anecdotal examples of low-performing schools or or traditional low-performing schools that have been very creative in still and still performing well, but those are, as you know, the exception more than they are the rule. I I don't think that there's any any research that is is quantitative of nature that to, that that looks at this issue. I, I just um but I do think it's important to to say something about No Child Left Behind behind, which is that No Child Left Behind is agnostic about the the um yeah, about how you teach. So those are well, it, 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 it's one of the ways that some districts have responded, and but that's a that, that's a that's a district by district decision. Yeah. One of the ways that some schools have responded. Yeah. Thanks so much, um, Yuta Tobias from the Society of the Psychological Study of Social Issues. Um, my question is about public policy, and I. I work on public policy advocacy here on Capitol Hill. And so I would love for any of you to speak a bit more about um, the framing of what we've heard here, the beautiful research and the evidence that you've presented here to convince the public as well as, as um, us here um, as agenda setters um, f to inspire future public policies because I hear a lot of beautiful things about this is not being a zero-sum game and there's a moral issue at stake, but in the current climate of money being tight and the majority of Americans wondering where the money could come from, how, how could we frame this 
in a really appealing way to the majority of Americans who will help uh, influence public policy. I wonder if any of you could take a few minutes to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> question. I mean, I, I, I guess I would say that I think that the U.S. education system's in crisis, and that you, you, you sort of start from there, and that um, it's kind of a quiet crisis. It's not, you know, it's not like nobody has been bombed, and, and we tend to respond. Our, pol our policies tend to shift in radical ways in, in the um, in light of something that is that we are confront in a, in a very visceral way, and that's just not the kind of crisis that we're in. But that um, the research that I mentioned just briefly, uh, connecting how well students are doing to our, all of our well-being in terms of our economic output is really important in framing this crisis. So we, this is the sad thing about what, what we're talking about today is that it's not new. And it's not like people didn't know this. And it's not like people don't know that how well you do in school is connected on an individual level with how well um, these kids are going to do in terms of going to college, in terms of labor market outcomes. So that hasn't been enough to push, to push things. So I guess the, I would start with framing it around a crisis for all of us in terms of growth. And this is maybe the right time to, to, to do that. Julie. Right. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. You want to go Julie. Julie. Go ahead, please. Julie. Oh, Julie. Okay, I was just going to say, I think part of this is, I've, I've heard it framed this way, this crisis, a couple of times, but not enough, as the, the civil rights crisis of our day. And, and I think that has real power, especially for um, part of a, the younger generation of teachers who are ready for a social mission, ready for a mandate, ready to be a part of a movement that's larger, larger than their classroom. And so if that's part of the message, message I think we have a big impact on the, on the incoming pipeline. Really, um, Governor Bredesen um, gets into trouble for this sometimes, but he says that, you know, teaching is one of those things that is just going to make sense for some people for maybe five years. It, there are just some people where they're at a place in their lives where they could go into the profession for five years, and that's what makes sense. And they might have a great sense of mission, especially to go into some of these lowest performing schools. Um, and so he really frames it as that, as like a life decision and a service decision. The only thing I'll, I'll add real, real quickly, I think in the federal, uh, in, in federal environment over the next couple of years, frankly, there's not going to be a lot happening over the next 18 months from the federal level. And even with, but even with the state economic crises that are going on, so much of these issues that we talk about, we're in Washington and we like to believe on the federal level that we have more influence than, than, than we have. Even with, even if No Child Left Behind doesn't change a bit, uh, what the state policy uh, issues around uh, teacher distribution, around licensure, around supports are really where the key decisions about what's going to happen around these issues is going to take place, some on a district level. But the, the real battleground for these types of issues is on the state level. So we've got to figure out how we can strategize around moving, uh, moving states forward on these issues. Can I say one thing also? So, sorry, I know there's so many hands. The, 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 there is something very important, though, about the messaging, right? Because what you're going to, you know, the next five years in a tight financial climate, a handful of things are going to happen, right? You're going to see districts that are going to say, there's no way I can have schools at 20% capacity, right? I got to close buildings. I got to move surplus people around. And, and in those climates, that is when the worst hiring decisions get made. 
It is the most expedient thing. If I am a district and I have someone on payroll who has a right to a job, I'm going to slot you into any position I can find because I cannot have you sitting on payroll without a job. And, and so the, the, the decision-making will be worse in this climate if, if we don't use the bully pulpit to say, you know, in crisis there's opportunity, whatever that cliche is, right? Like this is, you know, there's a lot of opportunities here, right? In a bad fis- fiscal climate, you've got a ton of unemployed people with great content knowledge that we need in the classroom. Okay, there's a, there's a pool of people now that we can go entice to this market that before would not have taken a job as a teacher because they could make more in a different market, right? So applicant pool opportunities, you know, how do you keep our eyes on the prize of, you know, if we are going to be having to constrict and close schools and move people, like, how do we get smart about about making these decisions and not just react in a panic state and and drive those things from 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 a bad place? Okay, let's do two more questions, and can you ask them one after the other? This woman in the back, and then... And then this woman right here. And you can respond to them together. Thanks. Um, hi, I'm Karen Chenoweth. And I was curious about something you said, Corey, about um, that the districts actually impede progress. Um, and I was wondering if that included more than just the HR offices, which have been alluded to. And maybe somebody else has something to say about this also. Um, I was specifically talking about HR processes and, um, you know, just practices and not allowing principals to really choose the staff that they really need and teachers who really want to be there. That's what I was really referring to. But I can say, um, and more broadly, it happens at a lot of levels. One, you know, district decision making for any initiative, anything that's going to happen that's going to require a teacher is historically out of sync with a hi- with any rational hiring season. So when we decide to close failing schools is in March typically, maybe April. How are you going to zero-base staff a brand new building starting that late, right? The planning for that happening that late. Um, you know, when budgets are released to schools, way out of sync with when you, you know, if you, we, we typically start recruiting in October for the next school year. Nobody's getting their money till June, right? <laughs> May, June. Um, you know, when you announce coaches, I, I can tell you every year, every district I work with suddenly gets a pot of money in August to have math and literacy coaches, and they yank master teachers out of the classroom and say to HR, go find 15 math teachers to backfill these positions. Where are you going to find 15 math teachers in August, right? So it is it is when school boards make decisions, and it is when districts make their decisions. They are not thinking about the very, the very, you know, I don't want to call a teacher an instrument or a tool, right? But the fundamental piece that's going to make your reform initiative successful is a teacher and you're not thinking about where you know when am I going to get them where am I going to get them and they're they're consistently out of sync I think. Ms. Bogoye-Chikana with Education Daily. I have a question for Victoria. And um, those 70 teachers that were involved in your study where they were offered money were any of them from high performing districts and um, were any of, did any of them from those high-performing districts say, uh, I will take the money, I will go, or um, were, did some of them say, no, I, I will stay? District study, yes. so they're not coming from another, they're not coming from the suburbs into the city, for example. This is, with the, this is they are moving from, from um, higher socioeconomic status schools to lower SES schools and, and higher-performing to lower-performing schools. Um, and yeah, as I said, out of the 70, we, we found four who were willing to make the jump. And this was, again, this was just a pilot feasibility year just to figure out if the research design was going to be 
functioning. We're starting the actual study this year where we'll be working with about 10 districts to try to get 100 people, 10 people per district to to move for this incentive. And then the, and then the research question is, are these people as effective in this new environment? Do they produce the similar gains going from um, a less high need to a, a more high need environment? Um, as school systems are working to improve, make, to make sure that every teacher is an effective teacher, is there room for um, incent in incentive? Um, and is there a sense of, is it $20,000? In your case, it was $20,000 apparently was not enough or um, $60,000, what will move the teachers? Julie both pointed out we don't know. We don't know what the magic number is. Let's do one final question. Yeah. Oh, you had your hand up for a while. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, Dan uh, brought up two points that attracted my attention. One, that uh, it would be nice to have a bidding war. That would be a nice problem to have. So one question is, uh, why is that there is not a bidding war, and how to get there? And uh, another one is, you mentioned uh, that there is a, no doubt a crisis in education. Okay, there is a crisis, but what's the root of the crisis and how to get over it? No, I, to be honest, I don't think that, I, I, I'll speak for myself, I can't answer those questions. I probably can't answer them, and I, I know I can't answer them in, in a short amount of time. We would require a whole other panel, but I'm happy to talk to you about it, those things after. He wants Just to try. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> One of the issues about why not a bidding war? is because particularly in hard-to-staff schools, the idea of opening the school year without a human being in front of the classroom is unfeasible and unacceptable. And so what happens is if you can't find the best candidate, then you go to the middle-of-the-pack candidate. If you can't find the middle-of-the-pack candidate, then you go to the low-qualified candidate. If you can't find a low-qualified candidate, you're going to put a mirror under somebody's nose and put them in front of the classroom. Within, within the constraint of the single within, salary with, schedule. I mean, I, I really within, think that's right, an important with, caveat. Right. Given, and so, right, what happens is, you know, I, I get which comes first, the chicken or the egg? You could blow up the single salary schedule and things would change. Or you could one day decide, you know what, if you don't have the qualifications, we're not going to hire you. And that single salary schedule is going to change in a hurry by, because we wouldn't have any, you know, we would, we would be involved in a bidding war then. And so, uh, you, know, it, you know, again, it's that, it's that chicken or the egg concept. But right now, we find it acceptable, unlike other professions, to be able to bring folks in uh, who have not demonstrated the skill knowledge or credentials that other professions would require because it's politically unfeasible to not have anyone in the, although you go to places like Bridgeport, Connecticut or, or, or some of our other urban schools, you actually you literally have kids sitting in auditoriums waiting for a teacher to show up. And so, you know, uh, even, even they can't find folks with a mirror under their nose, so it gets pretty bad. So. Well, I'd like to thank all of the panelists and all of you for coming today. We're clearly not going to solve this problem in one day, but hopefully this is uh, the beginning of an ongoing conversation.